I want to thank you for, for being here and for uh, taking the time out and choosing this uh, session. Our topic this morning is going to be the hermeneutical malpractice of Christocentric interpretation. There is a magazine that I've got circulating right now. It's just going to keep moving as I'm speaking. So please, I just ask after you look at it, don't put it down. Just keep moving it around. It is a Bible study magazine. It's dated uh, one, one year ago, 2021, I think September or something, 2021, put out by um, Logos, uh, you know, the, the, the research, the, the, the digital research platform. Um, and Nancy Guthrie's on the cover. And of course, it's very common. I could, have, I could have pulled one of any number of magazines. It's just one that I had at my fingertips and I wanted to throw it in my bag and bring it here. But the title story is um, Finding Christ in Every Scripture. Okay, that's, and you'll see it as it moves around. There's a big trend. It's a very um, popular and, in fact, seemingly a very uh, a devotional and faithful approach to read the scriptures with the intent of finding Christ. The question becomes, did God reveal Christ in every scripture? Uh, just a word about myself. I'm James Fazio. I'm the academic dean at Southern California Seminary in El Cajon, California. It's East County, San Diego. And uh, if you haven't heard of SCS before, we are um, a 76-year-old seminary. ATS accredited. Uh, most recently, just during COVID, we put that time to good use and pursued ATS accreditation to add that to our tracks accreditation. Um, and uh, we're, we've got a table outside. We'll, we'll be happy to talk to you and give you some more information on what we do there, the kinds of programs we offer. But let's talk about the hermeneutical malpractice of Christocentric interpretation. Just by way of introduction, there is a strong impulse among evangelical and reformed Bible expositors to read scripture through a Christocentric interpretive lens. That is to interpret scripture with a view to finding Christ in every scripture. Despite that this practice arises from a sincere desire to honor Christ, this hermeneutical approach nevertheless undermines the normal grammatical historical method of biblical interpretation. Christocentric interpretation was advocated for by the German reformer, Martin Luther, and has been adopted by well-meaning evangelical Bible expositors up to the present day. The practice is a growing practice. It is becoming more popular today, so we're seeing it. Uh, 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 we're seeing the approach on many magazines like the one circulating right now, oh no, we might, we, we might have to do without, without the visual because it did, it did turn off. Okay. He's going to look for a projector. Okay. Uh, now, and I will say this. I'm going to go ahead and present nonetheless because it could take half of our time to do that. And if you would come to our table, which is right outside, you've probably seen it, where we have the books, SCS Press books. Um, if, you, if you're interested in the presentation, Give us your email, and we will email a, P a PDF so that you can have all the slides, okay? Because as you can see as I started reading, it will contain a lot of the information uh, that I'm going to be presenting. So um, I was getting to Luther's approach to interpreting Scripture, which we're going to talk about a little later. This interpretive method is entirely, the Christocentric hermeneutic is entirely inconsistent 
with the normal grammatical historical method, which Luther also championed. So we're going to look at this challenge here that Luther both promoted a grammatical historical method and the fact that he promoted a Christocentric method, and I'm suggesting that the two are at odds with one another. We're going to evaluate that toward the latter part, and I will say that a, a very fully developed discussion, a critique of Luther's approach, which I will just touch on a few points in this talk, um, I wrote for a, a, a collected work that we put out on the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 2017. This was released October 2017 um, with uh, several different contributing authors, myself and uh, Professor Corey Marsh back there, uh, Thomas Ice, uh, Kevin Zuber, uh, Michael Vlock wrote the foreword. So if you're not familiar with this, I, I would recommend it. This demonstrates how dispensational thought arose from the, the fires of Reformation, if you will, forged from Reformation. Subtitle is How Dispensational Thought Advances, doesn't clash with, but it advances the Reformed legacy. And in it I address uh, uh, simply the matter of critiquing Luther's hermeneutic. I'll give you the points at the end of this talk. But I want to talk about the phenomena that exists today and is taught in many, many uh, Reformed seminaries and um, uh, a, a practice that has infiltrated many churches and um, is, is adopted by the very same people who would advocate for a grammatical historical method. This presentation will outline Luther's principles at the end for biblical interpretation and will suggest that in order for one to faithfully apply the Protestant hermeneutic to the biblical text, one must, in fact, jettison the Christocentric method of interpretation which he himself advocated. Um, finding Jesus in every scripture is, is the, the question or the challenge. Is it something that we should be doing? The idea of finding Christ in every scripture may appeal to the Christian sense of piety. Nevertheless, the practice is one that undermines the authority of God's word by establishing the reader as the authority. That is to say, when you are looking to find what you want to find, you will find it. You will. And, and of course, those who would readily relinquish the authority of Scripture and simply seek to look into the Scriptures to justify what they already believe or their lifestyle or any other number of social trends will go to the Scripture looking for it and will find it. So, of course, if you're going to the Scripture to look for something like Christ, it's a noble thing to look for, you will find it. The question is, is that God's intent in that Scripture? Grammatical historical method, it's important to, I've used this term a couple times, let me explain it, you're probably familiar with it. The grammatical historical method of interpretation is one which aims to discover the author's intended meaning in the text. So it presupposes that the meaning is fixed by the communicator, and that the reader's job, that would be us, is to discern or to discover rather than to create meaning through a transactional reading of the text. Now, this might sound very straightforward, and for many of you might say, well, duh. Of course that's, you know, the author determines the meaning. However, there is a massive trend in literary studies 
that suggests that the reader participates in a transactional nature. And Christians are particularly prone to that idea because of the added idea of the Holy Spirit as interpreter. Right? So we're almost expecting a transactional nature of reading Scripture, aren't we? I mean, if we're simply reading printed ink on a page, then we feel like we're doing scripture disjustice because it should be stimulating something in us. And what about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit? Shouldn't we have eyes to perceive things that the heathen, that the unbelievers cannot? Shouldn't there be something hidden under the surface that only we who have eyes to see can see? So all of that fosters an environment where Christians would be prone to scratch under the surface to find, if I might use the word, hidden meaning in the text. Everything from a Bible code to you know, something as innocent as let's find Christ in every scripture. Authorial intent, according to this method, if an analysis of the grammatical style of a passage, including its cultural, historical, and literary context, which is the grammatical, historical considerations. If it reveals that the author intended to convey an account of events that actually occurred, then the text should be taken as representing history. Passages should only be interpreted symbolically, poetically, or allegorically if, to the best of our understanding, the reader's perspective, that is what the writer intended to convey to the original audience. One of the best examples of this is found in Galatians 4, but we see it in many places, especially through the teachings of Jesus. Now, in Galatians 4, I'll flesh that out, where Paul is talking about Abraham with Sarah, and Hagar had two different children. And the point of that is he uses the term this is an allegory, actually uses the Greek term that is translated for the English or from, which, from whence the English term allegory is derived. He uses the term showing it as an illustration. We see this in the parables many times when Jesus taught, and he's using word pictures to communicate truth, not suggesting that the prodigal son was an actual historical story, but that he's painting a picture. He's creating an illusion. He's, creating a liter he's using a literary device to bring meaning, to bring understanding to the listener, or in our case, to the reader. If that's intended by the author, we absolutely need to receive it that way. We need to receive allegories. We need to receive parables, types, uh, so on and so forth. But if it's intended to communicate, for instance, as so much of our Old Testament is, Narrative, if it's Hebrew narrative, then we need to understand that the Genesis account, for instance, is giving us an actual picture of what occurred historically. And that's its intent. Its intent was not to reveal Christ. So we have to answer the question, is it what the writer intended to convey to the original audience, okay? We are not the original audience, right? And while we need to be able to apply it to our Christian circumstances, we need to remember that what we're reading is not 
Christian devotional material, right? It was not written as Christian devotion. It was written as Hebrew narrative, Hebrew poetry, Hebrew prophecy, so on and so forth, and then even in the, addressing the early church. Again, gospel accounts, uh, acts and historical narrative, and then epistles that are addressing specific issues to that church, so that even then, the first century church becomes the original intended audience. Okay. Reader response, literature as exploration, Louise Rosenblatt popularized this method of reading a text, the reader response method. It's the alternative to a grammatical historical. In this method, the reader plays a significant role in constructing textual meaning. Now, conservative Bible interpreters would shy away from this. On the surface, say, no, this is a faulty approach to scripture, but may unwittingly be pressing into this approach with the noble goal of finding Christ. Louise Rosenblatt, in 1938, wrote this seminal work, which has just taken off in so many critical literary studies and is found in universities all across America. Critical literary theory has infiltrated modern literary theory to the point that many American universities today offer literature courses, such as Discovering Queer and Feminist Themes in Shakespeare, or Feminism and Homoerotica in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. So they are reading into a historical work of literature to find the themes that they want to find that might be speaking to us in the present day. Now again, we see the red flag very clearly. However, critical biblical scholars have taken a similar approach to support feminist theology, do the same thing. Liberation theology, when they look at the text to say, how does this speak to our circumstances? And a host of other contrived theories. The error is in abandoning the plain meaning. What does Christocentrism have to do with all of these? Well, how can we compare finding Christ in every verse, a noble task, with finding LGBTQ plus themes in Shakespeare? Both approaches read into the text something that goes beyond the plain meaning intended by the author. So that is the connection between these. It is a hermeneutical approach, and it is not one which God intended. Advocates of Christocentric interpretation will point to Jesus' example, and this is where it comes from. This is the justification, and, and I, I say this, I want to repeat the fact that when our Christian brethren are doing this, it's, it's I would say, 99% of the time with the absolute best intent. All right, I mean, it is, it is not to read something bad into Scripture. It is, in fact, to read something good because the expectation is that the Holy Spirit will stir up something to our eyes that we alone might perceive and give us certain hidden wisdom and understanding of something. And the justification for this, or you could say the idea from whence this is derived, comes off of the Emmaus Road. Uh, this is from the NIV, or New King James, which says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said, this is the way they translate it, that's why I use this, in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, I think a better 
reading of this is found in the NASB and in the ESV, which says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, that's a very subtle difference, okay? And, and it's not, it's not, it's, it's potentially meaningful enough to send somebody down the right, wrong road, but it does not inherently mean that every scripture reveals Christ. It doesn't inherently mean that. You could get the same meaning from either reading, but, uh, or I should say the first, the first reading could kind of go either way. The second reading is more clear that all the scriptures concerning Christ is what he revealed on the road to Emmaus, as opposed to uh, showing them every single scripture that in every scripture Christ is revealed. Now, I just want to even consider the feasibility of, of this task, okay? Uh, but, but to define the distinction, it's one thing to say that all of scripture testifies to Christ, that is to say the totality of scripture, that scripture in all of its uh, uh, witness speaks to Christ, and yet it's another thing to say all scriptures speak to to Christ or testify to Christ. That is the difference in the language. The first claim communicates that the scriptures as a whole speak to Christ, while the second claim implies that the scriptures in each individual part reveal Christ. Now, lessons from the Emmaus Road, and this is where I'm going to just consider the feasibility, okay? Could it be that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus taught the disciples where he appeared in every verse of the Old Testament, an endeavor that would have taken nearly a week without any breaks. If you were to simply read through the Bible, if you were to get like an audio reading of the Bible or something like that, it takes about 72 hours. Okay, So you've got three straight days if they didn't stop, if they didn't eat, if they didn't sleep, if they did nothing but walk and talk for three days straight, he could have gotten through. However, if he added explanation concerning himself, he would have had to have added another 72 hours, right? I mean, roughly, if he spent as much time explaining what he had read to them, then you've got almost a week here. Or did he instead reveal himself throughout the Bible? Kind of like the way we would show from Genesis through Malachi. Here are the things concerning Christ. Okay, now let's consider for a minute Luther's hermeneutic and where this idea comes from, and as, as I've already mentioned, um, I developed this much more thoroughly in a chapter here to look at the inconsistency between Luther's hermeneutic and, or I should say Luther's approach to hermeneutics, and I'm going to go through all the various principles in outline form here, and the, uh, and the approach that would allow for a Christocentric reading of all of Scripture. The German reformer Martin Luther advocated for Christocentric interpretation, as we said. However, this interpretive method is entirely inconsistent with the normal grammatical historical method, which he also championed. I'm going to list his seven principles and briefly touch on each of them. But, um, you know, there was, of course, a, a, a lot of literature produced around the, uh, the, the 500 years of the Reformation. And... Um, so this, this was not Luther enumerating them, but this is Luther scholars who have looked at his interpretive approach and distilled it down to these seven points. They're, they're pretty easily discernible. Somebody could add maybe an eighth or, or condense a few into six, but, but what I'm offering is, is sort of um, what, what the, the academic community agreed on Luther's hermeneutic method, which influenced Reformed interpretation or hermeneutic. 
Number one, he stood on the authority of Scripture, meaning Christ, uh, Luther appealed to uh, Scripture as the authority, the idea of sola scriptura. Second, the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is sufficient to communicate the mind of God to the Christian believer, right? Not just to the Hebrew audience, its, it's original intended audience, but for the Christian, you know, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. Also, the perspicuity of Scripture. Of course, this is where Luther stood on the fact that it doesn't require a special interpreter to give us the meaning. We don't need a pope or some kind of a, 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 you know, a, a, a magisterium to give us the true meaning, the hidden meaning of God. It is sufficiently revealed by the text itself to the holy man of God. So this, of course, leads to the fourth point, the spiritual the requirement of faith and spiritual illumination. In other words, it's not necessarily the case that an unregenerate man will come to to see Scripture clearly. It does require for us to get the full meaning of Scripture. Our hearts need to be able to receive it, or we can be blind to receiving the message of Scripture. It doesn't mean we're blind to the words or even blind to to the meaning of the words on the page, but we cannot receive it. If it's not applied to our lives, we can't be transformed by it, which is, in fact, its very purpose, not merely communicating truth and ideas, but creating transformation. And so the necessity of the Holy Spirit is, is requisite for, uh, uh, in, in Luther's idea of biblical interpretation. Fifth, he affirmed the literal reading of Scripture in rejecting the Catholic approach that allowed a much more spiritual reading of scripture and allegorizing of scripture, um, reading uh, Jerusalem to mean Rome or Israel to mean church or so many other things, right? Kingdom to mean church. So he affirmed the literal or grammatical historical interpretive method. It's why it's referred to as the Protestant hermeneutic. Bernard Ram in Protestant biblical interpretation uses the grammatical historical method as what what he understands, and and really all uh, uh, biblical interpreters have used this normal grammatical historical method, which, by the way, Reformed interpreters will adhere to and and pay lip service to and acknowledge, in fact, and I don't mean to to suggest that in in a derivative way, they will cling to, acknowledge, embrace a grammatical historical method. So when a dispensationalist says, we appeal to a grammatical historical method, the reformed interpreter also says, so do I. Okay, And this is what they have in mind. right? In the tradition of the reformers, so do they. Because that's what Luther and Calvin and so many were saying. Okay, Six, the rejection of allegory as a valid interpretive method, meaning he's both stating in the affirmative and negating the Catholic interpretation that, that would deviate from the plain meaning of Scripture. So the rejection of allegory. And then, of course, point number seven. Okay, This is what it builds to. The Christocentric principle, which perceived the centrality of Christ in all of Scripture. So I'm going to go through each of these. Uh, the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. The reformers developed methods of textual analysis. And this is actually a Gerald Bray's um, observation from his biblical interpretation, past and present. So he said, the reformers developed methods of textual analysis, which are still in use 
and conservative Protestants continue to look at them as a source of inspiration. To understand the biblical interpretation of this period, it is necessary to grasp the implications of the Reformed doctrine of sola scriptura. Only then can we proceed to particular types of exegesis. So this is, this is Bray, and I'm just using this as a historical look at um, how we got to where we are today in Protestant hermeneutic. Points right back to um, Luther and, and uh, the, the Reformed movement, which planted the seeds for how we're interpreting scripture today with this method. Luther himself said, I will never permit any man to set himself above the word of God. And uh, I'll give you the source. And unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted. This is, of course, at the Diet of Worms, right? He's in, in defiance to the Pope. He says, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract my position. So that, that's how firmly he stood on the plain reading of scripture and his own human sensibilities. So he appealed to actually two things. Not it is sola scriptura, but he also appealed to, in the very same stance at the Diet of Worms, scripture and sound reason. Meaning, we could both point to the scripture, but what you're walking away from when you say you're pointing to the scripture, is a total deviation from what sound reason would lead me to believe. Meaning it's not the surface level communication that is revealed from those words, from the mind of God to the mind of man. You have done havoc to it in some way. You have twisted it. You have perhaps done as what Peter says about Paul, who wrote it in the end of his epistle, Peter says that, there are those who twist Paul's writings to their own destruction, right? They actually have the words of Scripture in the, in the words of Paul's epistles, but they twist them to their own destruction. And Luther says, when we do that, we are not getting the clear message that God has given us, the sound mind, to perceive the word of God. Second, the sufficiency of Scripture, that is, Scripture alone. Scripture was wholly sufficient to illuminate man's reason and to serve as an adequate guide into matters of doctrinal truth. The Word of God and the mind of man were designed for one another. Right? Before sin entered in, this was the purpose for the mind of man. God was communicating with man before sin entered the world, and he did it through human language. So it just goes to reveal God created language for the purpose to communicate with his creation. It's something that he didn't share with the animals, but he shared with mankind uniquely. Luther was convinced that it was incumbent upon the man of God to fully employ his faculty of mind and reason in the interpretation and application of Holy Scripture. Application does not violate this principle of sound reason, otherwise... We know what can happen. You can read a scripture, you can interpret the scripture, and yet you can misapply the scripture. So again, we must be governed by the faculties which God has given us to both discern the meaning and to apply it appropriately for our circumstances. 
Third, the perspicuity of Scripture. In Luther's estimation, the internal clarity involved the work of the Spirit in shaping the understanding of the human heart and mind of the reader. While the external clearness involved the use of normal human language, which was intended to convey the divine mind grammatically, meaning God communicated himself through word, but he also communicated himself through spirit. The activating agent there is the word of God, so that the word of God becomes the means, that the word of God would be living and active. And we say, well, is the word living and active? No. We know the spirit is living and active. But God activates the word through his spirit. He activates our spirits through his word. So this is the sort of hand-in-glove mechanism which God chose to activate within the human reader to enliven, to illuminate, to bring to life, to animate our spirits by his word by means of the spirit of God. And that, of course, brings us to this fourth point. Skevington Wood says this in Luther's Principles of Biblical Interpretation. He said, the way in which the Spirit conveys his interpretation of the word is through the mind and soul of the man who submits himself to the discipline of instruction. Meaning, being submitted to the word of God when man places himself under the authority of the word. Hence his maxim, sola experiential fecit theologum. Experience is necessary for the understanding of the word. Meaning it is not merely to be repeated and known, or it is not mere head knowledge, but it is to be lived and felt. It is to be experienced. The word of God was not given merely for our instruction, but for the correction of our path, to adjust the way we're living. So therefore, it must be experienced. And that requires the work of the Holy Spirit in the man of God. Fifth point, and this is from Milton Spencer Terry. He says, the grammatical historical sense of a writer is such an interpretation of his language as is required by the laws of grammar and the facts of history. Sometimes we speak of the literal sense by which we mean the most simple, direct, and ordinary meaning of phrases and sentences. By this, we usually denote a meaning opposed to the figurative or metaphorical. So he is simply defining for us, and I say this to bring another voice into it in evaluating what Luther meant by literal, grammatical, historical. That is to say, he meant exactly what we mean. Okay, he understood it the same way we understand it. The same way we have defined it, that's what he understood. Obviously, we've gotten a little more technical in our explanation of it. We talk about authorial intent, and we go into these things, but he, he, that, that is exactly what he meant, the grammatical historical sense. And by this, of course, this leads right into this next principle. This is, again, Skevington Wood, and he says, from his own experience, he knew the futility of allegorization, mere jugglery, a merry game. Now, this is Luther's language, by the way. These are things that he, these are words and phrases which he used to condemn Catholic interpretation or papal um, understanding of Scripture. And he called it a merry game, monkey tricks. It, it, that's, it, it translates several different ways, the German word, but it's usually like monkey business or monkey tricks. 
That's how he stigmatizes it. He says, when I was a monk, Luther frankly acknowledges, I was adept in allegory. So he's saying this was according to his training. This was the way he was trained to handle the word. I allegorized everything. But after lecturing on the epistle to the Romans, I came to have some knowledge of Christ. For therein, I saw that Christ is no allegory, and I learned to know what Christ was. So Luther's crisis of faith and turning away from the Catholic interpretation caused him also to reject Christian or Catholic allegory of the scriptures. And yet, he he continues, uh, Skevington Wood, in his analysis, he says, for Luther, this Christocentric interpretation of scripture is raised to a major hermeneutical principle. If then you would interpret well and truly, he says, now this is quoting Luther, if then you would interpret well and truly, set Christ before you, Luther advises, for he is the man to whom it all applies. So his claim and his understanding and his expectation was that every scripture, Old Testament and New, reveals Christ. The greater degree to which it reveals Christ, sort of the higher that scripture might be elevated, which really brought him to the point of having or holding to, at least in practice, a canon within the canon. With great disregard for the Old Testament in general, uh, very similar disregard for the writings of James and other New Testament writings for that very same reason. Jewish scriptures, as he would have understood them. So as I said earlier, it is one thing to say all of scripture testifies to Christ. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a major hurdle to cross here, okay? To say that all of scripture testifies to Christ. And it's another to say that all scriptures testify to Christ. Luther's position, his starting point, which is what has influenced Reformed interpreters today, is more closely reflects the latter idea that all scriptures individually testify to Christ. And that's the example we have here with Nancy Guthrie and the cover story for the, uh, um, what is it, Uh, May-June 2021, From Eden to Eternity, Nancy Guthrie Pursues Christ on Every page, it becomes a hermeneutical approach that says, what can I find in scripture through my eisegetical approach? Now, of course, they wouldn't own the word eisegesis. They would think that God will direct them through spiritual understanding. But to find something in scripture that isn't, you know, to to look for the hidden meaning requires jettisoning a grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. It would be forcing a reading onto the text where that was not apparent from the word of God and and the sound reason which he's given us. Protestant interpreters today who seek to follow in the footsteps of the reformers would do well to follow Luther's six points, the first six enumerated above, while steering clear of a forced Christocentric hermeneutic, which threatens to undermine the perspicuity of Scripture. The adherence to a literal or grammatical historical interpretive method, and finally, the rejection of allegory as a valid method of interpretation. Those are all sound. 
But to lean into that seventh point is actually quite destructive. Now, I want to acknowledge once more as we close, despite that the hermeneutical approach arises from a sincere desire to honor Christ, we're, we're not trying to suggest that anybody has the, the, the wrong motives in doing this, it nevertheless undermines the normal grammatical historical method of biblical interpretation. And in fact, as I showed earlier, it really leans into popular critical literary theory, which reads into any text what the reader wants to find. And as long as we can sort of nod our heads and agree what we're wanting to find is Christ in Scripture, then we might feel, okay, I can, I can lean into this interpretive method, but all it takes is the reader to say, I want to find something else other than Christ in Scripture. And the, and the method is, is, the failure of the method is exposed. What I'm suggesting is that the method itself is flawed. And we need to just simply be aware of the fact that as good as it sounds on the surface, following a Christocentric hermeneutic is, in fact, hermeneutical malpractice. It inadvertently robs scripture of its authority because when we read the message which God placed there, we say the author is the authority of this text. It is my job to simply receive what he has placed there. And this is why, if we take this approach consistently, and to the extent that our Reformed brethren do so, we find much agreement. We really do find quite a bit of agreement with Reformed interpreters, as you know. But to the extent that they're leaning into this alternative method, or departing from a grammatical historical method, for a Reformed hermeneutic, whether it be Christocentric, or whether it be simply following the pattern laid down by the reformers where they themselves pressed into allegorical or spiritualizing, particularly in the area of prophecy, Hebrew prophecy, the book of Revelation, and anywhere else they choose to do so, finding their guardrails, not in scripture and a hermeneutical practice that is following a grammatical historical method, but by following the very pattern of the reformers following the grammatical historical method to the extent that the reformers did, and they did to a great extent, and departing from said method to the extent which they departed from it, and they were comfortable in many cases departing from that method to adhere to either an allegorical or a Christocentric method. So it's the reason why, rather than leaning into the reformed hermeneutic, it is important to stand firm on the grammatical historical hermeneutic. It basically says the author of scripture is the authority and the scripture which he revealed I must submit to. Or it says I am the authority in the meaning that I derive from this text. And the extent to which there is parity between reader you know, if a spiritual person, a devout person, one who leans mostly into grammatical historical hermeneutic, then there will be degrees of parity, but to the extent to which the author, by his whims and fancies, hopefully, prayerfully, guided by the Holy Spirit, but altogether possibly guided by the flesh, 
guided by one's own desires, it becomes very easy to read into the text something that God did not place in it. And so even with the noble task of wanting to find Christ in every scripture, if Christ was not placed in every scripture, we should simply seek to find what God intended to reveal. And I'll leave it there with just a few minutes um, for, for discussion, response, questions, or anything else. I already see a hand up. Uh, yeah, uh, would you mind introducing yourself before you? My name is Ken Finchip Chase. Um, I've interacted with you know, with some of these materials as well, and I, I found that one of the biggest distinctions in that they have to make in order to justify the practice, they look at, we all recognize there's two authors of scripture, the human and the divine, uh-huh. and they have to separate out what the human author intended versus what the divine author might have intended. Mm-hmm. Whereas we would look at it and say, hey, there's harmony, there's perfect harmony between what the human author intended, what the divine author intended. Do you have, a, are there any particular arguments or resources that you found helpful for engaging that kind of rebuttal if someone says, well, you got to look at what the divine author intended? Yeah. So um, the, the two obviously are not mutually exclusive, right. but, they, but they, are, they are in fact, t- there are two. Meaning we talk about, and it's, it's remarkable how much this pattern is everywhere. It's not unique to the human and the divine author, but even the human and the divine natures in the person of Christ. You know, I mean, this is just, this is everywhere in scripture. And, and so um, this is this God, this is God in creation and how he has revealed himself to creation. And so that's what we're dealing with here. Obviously we need to consider both of these things, but realize that they're not in conflict. Number one, God chose the human to express the divine. And it's, it's like the, the, the very thoughts which I have, and I don't, I'm not going to overstate this, I'll, I'll temper this statement, but it's like the very thoughts that I possess in my mind, which are abstract, they become concrete the minute I speak them, put them to words, or write them, put them on paper, right? And then you can enter into my mind, which otherwise is abstract, by my word, written or spoken. Now, um, that's not to make the human authors mere, you know, automatons or nothing but a a writing implement because of course we see they're expressing themselves but what they're what god is using them to express is the divine mind and that i think is revealed very much by the fact that not everything which they said or wrote was scripture but to the extent they communicated the divine mind, it was, as, as Paul praised the Corinthians, when they received the words as they were not from man, but from God, because they recognized that that writing of his was God's word. What's interesting, and of course it was preserved as God's word, and you know, I think we're probably, most of us, very familiar with the fact that the very epistle to the Corinthians where he expressed that, we see that... There is at least one other epistle to the Corinthians, which we don't have, which they did not see fit, that they didn't see appropriate to preserve as God's word and circulate among the churches to the extent that what we have first, what we call first and second Corinthians was because it was received as God's communication. Okay, we got uh, hands everywhere. We'll do there and then up here and then over here. We'll move around. Yeah, go ahead. Jerry, Joey. 
part of the book that has popularized this in Christian circles more than any other is Brian Chapel's uh, Christ-centered preaching. And uh, that's very, very popular. Terry. A lot of people have read that. It's a good book or two, I guess, to the end of the book where it talks about Christian century. So his contention and his whole contention, see all the people follow him, is that uh, the, uh, no sermon is a true sermon that doesn't find Christ in the text and, and preaches the gospel no matter what the text has. So that is a tremendous influence in all sorts of art. Right. Right. And, and, and yet, how is he defining sermon? I mean, he's not probably, you know, there were many sermons preached outside of the New Testament, but he's going to focus on the fact that when, we know this, the gospel cannot be preached without Christ. Right? But it's another thing to say, are you preaching the gospel or are you preaching the text? And if you're preaching the text as opposed to preaching a sermon, I mean, again, I guess you could define however you want to sermonize. But if the goal is to expound on the text, then we need to have the text as our goal. Behind? Yeah, go ahead. Jeremy Howard, uh, Ken Chiffis and I have a, a podcast where we actually did a Bible interpretation series and interviewed Michael Block and compared our hermeneutic to the Christocentric hermeneutic. And one of the things that I struggled with, and I'm curious just to know where you land on this, is how serious this issue is. A- after reading their original works, and understanding they are Christian brothers. Of course. And like you said, the intent, 99% of the time, is a good intent. Yeah. How serious is this? I mean, is it to the point where you could never recommend a church that practices this kind of hermeneutic? Or how do you feel about it personally? Yeah. Um, well, again, I think it's a dangerous practice, and I, I think it's very important that we, um, and uh, uh, like I said, if the human performing the practice it's, it's only as good as the person performing it. Let me put it that way. Okay? The word of God is far better than the person reading it. But the one applying that practice, the result is only as good as the reader. To the extent that the reader wants to be very pious, very devotional, be pure to, to, to God and finding Christ alone, then... Then, then the worst thing that's going to happen is that they're going to misinterpret and misapply. And to the extent to which they do that, I mean, I mean, it, you, you need the temperance. And unfortunately, those who are practicing Christocentric interpretation, usually they're not doing it to the exclusion of a grammatical historical. So, so they're guarded, their guardrails then become the extent to which they're, they're doing grammatical historical. But, you know, Luther, who called attention to the dangers of allegory, I agree. I'm also saying there's also tremendous danger in Christocentric interpretation for the very same reason, because now the reader becomes, is, is the one giving meaning to the text. And, and, and that approach, the hermeneutical approach, is a dangerous approach. Every time it's applied, you know, it, to... to you know, with a desire to find anything other than something very good and pure, um, you know, so, so that, that becomes the problem. It's, it's only as good as the sinful man who's performing it. And then up here and then there. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Thomas Bevin, it seems like some of this is, a, uh, it goes back to Platonic dualism, and they're looking for a spiritualized interpretation, which is their default whenever they disagree with the literal interpretation. So the book of Revelation is a key in point. 
every time the literal interpretation means something other, they spiritualize it, and they justify spiritualizing it because spirit is better than right. flesh. And yeah. so putting Christ on that spiritualization seems to be a nicer way of doing it, but mm -hmm. it's still spiritualizing where spirit is better than flesh, but that's not the intent the scripture is trying to say. There's nothing that says we have to abandon our, our reality for a pure spiritual reality. Right. Yeah, that's very well said. So two things. First, um, the, if you comment on the difference between interpretation and application mm -hmm. to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that passage in First Peter, going back to the original question, I was trying to follow up on that original question about the difference, differentiation between the divine intent and the human intent. Mm -hmm. That passage in First Peter where it talks about the prophets, you know, that Grace that would come to you, make careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ who was indicating his predicted sufferings of Christ. Mm -hmm. So the prophets didn't fully understand right. what they were writing. Mm -hmm. Hence, there was a divine intention beyond the human intention. Of course. I agree with you 100%, but I'd like you to comment on that. Yeah, I, so I would just say um, the extent to which the human mind communicated something, which, the, which everything that was written, the human mind understood Daniel in the in you know in writing prophecy concerning generations and kingdoms that would rise afterwards uh, the extent to which God revealed to him understanding he communicated that and what he communicated was true it was fully consistent with the divine mind because the divine mind is true and Daniel's communication or any of the prophets communication of that was true but here's the difference the divine mind is infinite and the human mind, in all cases, even illuminated, the human mind is finite. Okay, the extent to which God revealed something to the prophets, which they themselves could not look into, then that was truth. God revealed himself to them in ways that they could not have, you know, dove into on their own. They could not have peered into and discovered that apart from the revelation of God. But even what they expressed was still in itself limited. I mean, Hebrews commenting on Abraham and his trusting, trusting God, bringing Isaac up and, and, and believing that he and the lad would come back down. You know, this kind of language implies and moves into the idea that maybe Abraham had more. Maybe he trusted God could even raise him again from the dead if, if, if he had gone through with the sacrifice. And all these things which, which are communicated to us, we're, we're getting a glimpse into the human mind that we say, how could he have known that apart from divine illumination? Yes, but God illuminated the human mind sufficient to communicate his truth, but of course, again, that, the limitation being that he only provided it situationally to the extent that the human mind needed to communicate that truth, not to the furthest extent. Yes? Okay. Um, I'm Phil Boom from the Mass Bible College. Uh, so given uh, what the Lord Jesus said on the road to Mass, and also Philip preached Christ to them from the Old Testament, mm -hmm. how should we distinguish those passages which clearly do speak of them right. and those which don't? Yeah, and I would say of of which there are many. Right. Much of the Old Testament right. does reveal Christ. Much of the prophets. Far, basically. Yeah. Where do you find your limit? Yeah. And, and, and I would say, um, it, it, it sounds perhaps trite because I've, I've said this so many times already, but by sticking to a normal grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. Meaning, by only, by, by, by saying, what, uh, to, to what extent could 
um, the original audience, what was communicated to them, what did they understand? And then, once we've answered that question, it helps us then to say, what did they not understand? What can we understand? Because what we have now is informed by so much more. I mean, they didn't have the New Testament. They, in many cases, may not have even had other passages of the Old Testament, which it could be sufficient to reveal some of these things. So, so the point is, it doesn't mean that we, we can go no further than this individual passage, but that this passage stands within, with continuity among all of Scripture. And if it testifies to that very thing, Christ, and many Scriptures do, then it's appropriate to do so. It's just we, what we want to avoid is forcing a paradigm onto Scripture, particularly maybe thinking that that, that that was a prescribed paradigm, because I don't think so. I think, in obviously, Christ showed the disciples many things concerning himself from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament reveals Christ, but not every passage. So it's, it's the hermeneutical paradigm. There is a question back there, and then up here. We'll have to probably be the last one. I'm going to dovetail on this same thought. Most of us are practitioners, so we've got to move from the exegetical to the homiletical. Mm-hmm. And we believe that the Word of God is transformative. How do we get beyond the old covenant? So, so if we're in some narrative which may not be explicitly pointing to Christ, mm-hmm. but how do we move from the old covenant to the new covenant, lest we stay with a teaching or a sermon? that a good, pious Jew or Muslim or Mormon could agree with. Um, how do we avoid that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Well, um, and, and to, I'm going to answer that and also maybe continue on the question of distinguishing between interpreting a text, meaning what does the text mean, and applying the text. How does this inform how I live? What do I do with the text? And as I said earlier, uh, the, the text was not written as Christian devotional material, but of course it can be applied to Christian devotion, right? I mean, so, so even the, the statement I mentioned earlier, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, instruction, in righteousness. All, all of scripture. So, so, I mean, of course it's all for our growth, for the Christian's growth, for our correction, to bring us into Christian maturity, and, and that would include, you know, the, the boring passages in, in, in Numbers or <laughs> wherever you want to go with that, right? So, so it's, it's not that it's not for our growth and for our, our, our strength, but to look for, to, to have in mind a certain destination rather than allowing the text to reveal the destination. That's the problem. Because who's telling the story? God or man? And if we've already decided that the whole story that God is telling is summed up in this word and this word alone, Christ. Well, it is all for his glory. Absolutely. It is all for Christ, but it is not only saying Christ. Otherwise, when it says that the sinful will be judged, you know, that's what it's saying. And, you know, we could could move that over to but Christ has taken upon himself the judgment of the sinful. We, we can, okay? But we need to be aware that that is an application one step removed. Otherwise, we end up with universalism. You know, I mean, so if we start preaching something else that always points to Christ, we're losing the, the impact, the importance of the fact that man 
is, is, is condemned. And that's what some statements state. But before we get to the Christ is redeemed. You know, and, and I did say one last one, last one so go ahead. Uh, just kind of an observation. I think there's a connection with um, how the Reformed also handle kind of a covenant permeated and that they would say we use grammatical historical methodology on the New Testament and then again they would say we see the apostles using a spiritual hermeneutic on the Old Testament mm-hmm. so that we can Right. Use that as as our method to go back into the Old Testament. Right, right, and 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 that opens up a whole nother discussion on hermeneutical method, which I will I'll, I'll close out by just speaking to very very briefly. But there's there's so much to go into on this. I mean, the practice is one which says, look at what the New Testament writers did with the Old Testament. I just used Galatians four as an example. Look at what they did. Look at how when we read Hebrews, it tells us things that you can't get simply from reading the Old Testament. Therefore, because this is the New Testament practice of reading things that go beyond the Old Testament, then we too can speak in ways that go beyond the Old Testament as long as we're reaching New Testament conclusions. Okay, And then the question becomes, at what point are we doing that and simply reading into it our own, our own interests, our own passions, our own... you know? And again, maybe ho- hopefully very pious, very you know, as long as it's Christ but we're just reading into it what what we want. Now, the fact is, no different than the Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets weren't making this stuff up. God, no prophecy was of private interpretation. Nobody ever spoke their own word, but holy men of God wrote scripture as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That's how it occurred in the Old Testament. That's how it occurred in the New Testament. So when we have new revelation at at the... lips of or at the hands of the apostles and the New Testament prophets giving new revelation, even if it reveals more than what the Old Testament revealed, it goes beyond, and of course it does. That is their apostolic prerogative as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit, and we must make a distinction between the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets and the ministry of teachers who are building upon that foundation today. We are not laying another foundation. We are not continuing their work. We are not continuing to do the very work which they did. We are building upon their work. To teach is different than to prophesy or to to, to give that individual revelation from God. We are giving explanation of what God already revealed through his holy apostles and prophets. So we need to understand the limits on what we do because we are guided by scripture and can go no further. And they were guided by the direct illumination and direction and the inscripturation process of producing scripture by the leading of the Holy Spirit, which we're not at liberty to do. Okay, thank you for your time. Uh, Visit us at at the table. Thank you.